0: The fear of death and what those who have fallen into her clutches can bring forth upon the living is a fear which has driven and dictated funerary customs throughout the centuries. Underneath the spectacle of ornate showings of last respects and tokens of remembrance are ancient precautions means of ensuring that the dead remain as such, and that their spirits are kept at bay. It ensures that the body, now defiled by death, is safely disposed of, unable to spread more of its morbid affliction to the living by means of its uncleanliness. The first known ritual burial by humans appears roughly around 100,000 years ago in the Taban Cave, located in modern day Israel. In the cave, the remains of a Neanderthal woman and a small child were found, both placed on their sides and surrounded by over 70 Red ochre stained tools. The placement of the bodies and the objects surrounding them is believed to be one of the earliest evidence of ritualized burial. Since almost the beginning, humans have sought to appease the newly dead by holding elaborate rituals to honor the spirit and, in some ways, helping to prepare it for the afterlife. Bodies of the deceased were then safely laid to rest, typically either by burial or cremation. For many, this was not only a sanitary measure, as many believed that decomposition brought about disease, but was also a means of protection. It was believed that the dead, if not properly laid to rest, could become home to evil spirits and demonic curses. Burying or burning the dead was a measure to ensure that the living would be safe from evil. In fact, almost all of our favorite stories of the supernatural tend to stem from humankind's fear of death. Vampire legends have their origin in the fear of death and of people's misunderstandings of the natural process of decomposition. While history is full of legends and stories of monsters, demons, and spirits, who feast upon the blood of the living. The vampire legends we are familiar with today first came about during the Middle Ages. During this time, death was always lurking. And thanks to the plague, she made a daily habit of gathering large portions of the population into her icy embrace. Vampire hysteria grew to a heightened fervor during this time period due to the general populace's lack of understanding of disease and what it could do to the body. As was in line with the belief systems of the time that disease was caused by malevolent entities, people concluded that the plague and the deaths it brought about was caused by supernatural forces. Since plague victims often experienced deep lesions and blood pooling around the mouth, it was obvious to the people at the time that these deaths could only be brought about by one thing, vampires. On a dreary winter's day, a prominent English chronicler made his way through the muddied path of a neglected town cemetery. He was on a most unlikely quest for a man of such a sophisticated and scholarly nature. He was looking for vampires. William of Newburgh was quite a renowned figure during his time. He was a dedicated historian, known for creating some of the most important and valued historical works of the 11th and 12th century. He carefully penned his knowledge of not only classical writings and history, but also spent a great deal of his time talking to people and preserving English oral traditions, including folklore and legends. One legend which he kept encountering time and time again was that of the vampire, or, as it was known then, a revenant. The frightening tales of the dead feasting upon the living piqued his interest, as the tales were all quite similar in nature. Many of the eyewitness accounts came from people who seemed respectable and would seemingly reap no benefit from manufacturing such a story. William, like many others of his day, was also trying to make sense of the plague that ran rampant in his homeland. He, like everyone else, pondered what dark forces were at play to cause such a brutal disease to sweep across the land. Since vampire stories always seemed to coincide with plague outbreaks, William became intrigued he felt that the answers to the plague and its origin may very well lie in the strange stories of the undead. While William was a well-educated man, he was still very much a product of his time. William lived during a period of history when superstition reigned and when fear of demons and dark forces were a very real part of life. It's no surprise that this chronicler's otherwise logical mind would have given merit to such seemingly outlandish stories. As William began his search for answers, He closely followed local reports of vampire attacks and took care to investigate. One particularly dreary winter's morning, he received an invitation to intend an exhumation of a suspected vampire. Enthralled by the idea of documenting such an event and of perhaps witnessing, such a creature with his own eyes, William accepted and soon began his journey to the old cemetery. As William made his way past an assortment of weathered grave markers, he finally spotted the group of men he was to meet with. They were quite a ragged lot, mostly peasants, and they had an interesting assortment of objects in tow. There were shovels and a small cart containing iron spikes and several large stones. When one of the men saw William approach, he gave a swift nod, and the others hoisted their shovels and began digging into the soft earth of a recent grave. The crisp gray winter's afternoon, with its light fog and rain drizzling down, made the whole affair seem all the more mysterious, as it lent a sense of foreboding into the air. After some time, the swift crunching of the earth gave way to a sharp clang. The coffin had been reached. The men struggled for a few moments to pry open the lid. And when they finally did, the body of the occupant, a young man, was revealed. As they looked upon the corpse, a silent shock swept across the party. Though dead for quite some weeks, the corpse appeared fresh. The skin still had a glow about it. The stomach appeared distended, as though it had recently feasted. And most shocking of all, blood could be seen pooling around the mouth. William stared in awe as the realization washed across him. The stories were true as there, laying before him, was, in his mind, undeniable evidence for the existence of vampires. After saying a prayer over the corpse, the man in charge of the group grabbed an iron stake from the cart and thrust it, into the corpse's chest. Then, he drove spikes into each arm and leg to ensure that the vampire would not be able to rise again. To finish the job, a stone was placed in the mouth and a larger stone on top of the corpse. Afterwards, the coffin was sealed shut with fresh iron nails and reburied. William would later record the event, penning that he had witnessed firsthand a walking corpse with belly engorged from feasting upon human blood. He recounted how when unearthed, it was sleeping in the grave, waiting for nightfall so that it could stalk the land under the cover of darkness. William also shared his personal views of what he believed the vampire's purpose was and who it answered to. William stated that the vampire phenomenon came about due to a curse, a curse which was placed upon a corpse by the devil itself. The cursed corpse acted as a puppet, spreading disease and bringing about death. When it comes to vampire lore, this account by William of Newburgh is an incredibly important piece. It is the first recorded account of a vampire being found, and the first recorded accounts which outlined the steps that went into eliminating one. It is also because of this work that vampires often get associated with the devil, and why vampirism is generally associated with plague and disease. While the Middle Ages were a time rife with stories of the dead feasting upon the blood of the living, the label of vampire doesn't come about until a few centuries later. It wasn't until the late 1600s that the term vampire officially comes into use, and the basis of the legend that we are familiar with today begins to take form. In the late 1600s, a wave of deaths began to wash over Slavic countries. Villages and towns all over began experiencing an alarming string of strange deaths. Even more worrisome, the majority of these deaths were often caused by ordinary people who would suddenly, without rhyme or reason, become violently insane. In many of these cases, the startling violent behavior would reportedly occur shortly after being bitten by a strange animal, which was said to later shapeshift into a human-like figure. Before long, stories began to spread, and the narrative of the vampire began to take form. Tales spread from town to town, country to country, about blood-sucking shapeshifters which stalked the night, preying upon humans. They often took the form of a wolf or bat and would attack unsuspecting humans feasting on their blood. Many of those bitten would die moments afterwards, but others would seem to be infected by the vampire's curse. They too would develop a desire for blood and would violently attack and dismember any who crossed their path. In the mid-1700s, vampire hysteria was in full force and was only reinforced by a series of events involving a hajduk, or a peasant infantry soldier, named Arnold Paul. In 1718, Arnold Paul's life took an unexpected turn when the Habsburg monarchy Annexed a large portion of Serbia and the northernmost part of Bosnia. Previously under Ottoman control, these areas were already weakened by war, and the inhabitants of the areas had almost been wiped out. Those that did remain were not only impoverished, but the vast majority were also nomadic, a lifestyle which had become a necessary technique for survival. At first glances, one would wonder why the new Austrian rulers had been so intent on securing these new territories. The lands lacked any sustainable farmland, and a sparse, impoverished population would certainly not be able to provide any wealth to the monarchy. However, the new Austrian rulers had dreams of reviving the area and its economy and turning it into a successful and thriving Austrian colony. In order to protect their investment from bandits and other miscreants, and to ensure Austrian families safe passage into the area, the Austrian military recruited as many displaced Serbians as they could. The young men they targeted were easily won over by the promise of steady pay, and most importantly, of land, of their very own, something which, until then, was fairly unheard of in the area. It's no surprise that a great many young men applied, eager to bring themselves and their families out of poverty and away from the hardships of nomadic life. One such young man was Arnold Paul, Until then, Arnold, like most, had lived in a rather dreary existence. The hardships of poverty and the lack of adequate shelter had aged him well beyond his years. And he was excited for the chance of not only having money, but for the opportunity of having land, a permanent home. Being able to stay in one place, not having the constant stressors of always being on the move, seemed like the ultimate luxury to him. So, as soon as he heard that the Austrians were recruiting, Arnold, along with a few others from his caravan, made the long trek by foot over to the Austrian controlled border. For the most part, the journey was rather uneventful and with spirits lifted by hope, even a little enjoyable. But near the tail end of their journey, things began to turn. Some of the men became struck by a sudden illness, their decline quite rapid. The quick nature of the disease had many in the group fearful not only fearful of the disease itself, but of what they believed to be its source. Vampires. A few of the men even claimed to have seen the creature with their own eyes, Arnold being one of them. As the days egged on, more and more members of the group became ill, and many did not survive the journey. Before long, Arnold made the decision to part ways with the others and make the rest of the journey solo. The decision was primarily fueled by fear and paranoia, as Arnold had become more and more convinced That the group was being followed by a vampire. He would later recount that during his solo trek across the countryside, the vampire had continued to follow him, leaving him convinced that he was the intended target all along. One evening, while setting up camp for the night, the vampire attacked. Arnold flailed about in a panic struggle, but managed to fight it off by thrusting one of his tent stakes into its side. The startled creature retreated, but not before it had managed to sink its fangs into Arnold's shoulder. Knowing that, that the bite could lead to him falling victim to the vampire's curse, the same maddening illness that had befallen the others in his group. Arnold knew his only chance for survival was to hunt down and kill the vampire. Arnold claimed he eventually caught up with the vampire, following it throughout the night until ending up at a small, decrepit graveyard. He watched as the vampire lowered itself into a grave and stared in disbelief as the dirt, seemingly of its own accord, began filling in the hole. Not too long afterwards, the sun began making its ascent. Arnold stayed in place until daybreak. Then, when he felt the vampire was in its deep slumber, he began digging through the soft earth of the vampire's grave. Since he lacked a shovel and used only his bare hands, the work lasted well into the afternoon. At last, he reached the coffin where the vampire lay. He carefully pried open the lid and looked down upon the sleeping beast. It was as still as death itself. After taking a shaky deep breath, Arnold raised the wooden stake and plunged it into the vampire's chest. This, he knew, was only the first step in ridding himself of the vampire's curse. He knew from the folk teachings that had been passed down to him from his grandmother that there were other steps necessary in ridding himself of the vampire's curse. First, he had to make a paste out of the grave dirt and the vampire's blood. Then, he had to smear the paste over his face and on his arms and legs. Afterwards, he was not to venture far from the graveside and needed to spend the night by the vampire's grave. Only by the following daybreak could he safely return to his journey. But keeping the curse at bay would require continuous care. At the beginning of each new month, Arnold would need to rub his face and extremities with graveyard dirt. Eventually, Arnold made it to the Austrian military post and was processed and assigned his duty. Now, some Hadjax protected the border, but others were stationed further out. Arnold was assigned the roaming infantry, and he and the others patrolled the outskirts, keeping bandits at bay. Arnold took to his duties, and he and the other men got along quite well. In fact, Arnold was so at ease with his new position that he lost track of time and had completely forgotten about the need to acquire graveyard dirt. A few weeks later, his fellow soldiers began to notice a change in Arnold. He became absent minded, lethargic and appeared feverish. A short time later, he developed a rather violent temper, and some of the men became fearful of his reactions. Those fears, as it would turn out, were quite justified, as one day Arnold, in a fit of madness, began attacking and murdering his fellow soldiers. He then made his way over towards a small nearby village, attacking and murdering several people before he himself was killed. When word finally made it back to the Austrian base about Arnold Paul, like a game of telephone, the story about what had happened with the rogue soldier had become twisted and had deviated entirely from the truth, turning it more into folklore. At least, that was their take on it. The villager who had made the trek back to the base told soldiers that the post had been attacked by a vampire, who then had come into their village. The villager proudly puffed his chest as he told the soldiers the story of how one of his cousins had killed the vampire. But it seemed that the vampire's curse had transferred over, and the village was now being plagued by disease and murders the villager told the Austrians that since the soldier was one of theirs, they demanded assistance with the task of hunting down and killing the other vampires that Arnold had helped to create. While they scoffed at the idea of vampires, the Austrians were concerned that there might be a plague sweeping through the village, which could, in turn, kill off more of their men. Because of this, Austrian forces sent out a group to investigate the happenings in the village. Of those men assigned to the task was a young German doctor by the name of Johann Flückinger, The doctor, however, was not an eager participant. He loathed the locals, thinking the Slavic people of the region beneath him. But if there was some sort of plague, it was best to know what they were up against. The doctor's journey would prove to be anything but ordinary and would forever change his view of the locals and of those vampire superstitions he had scoffed at. Shortly after arriving at the village, the men were summoned to attend a vampire hunt. The villagers explained to the men that when disease strikes, members of the village shortly after a death It is a sign that the recently departed has become a vampire. In this case, the grave must be exhumed, and if the corpse shows the telltale physical signs of vampirism, it must be pierced through the chest with a stake, preferably made of iron. During this particular hunt, the prime suspect was a woman named Stana. Stana, only 20, had died during childbirth several months earlier, and many of the villagers had recently claimed to have seen her roaming about at night. Some even claimed to have been attacked by her. As the group made their way through the small graveyard, they stopped at the small marker indicating Stana's resting place. The ground was hard, and it took the group quite some time until they finally reached the coffin. After the lid was lifted, everyone gathered around To peer at the corpse. After a brief moment of silence, one of them said, It looks like we found our vampire. The doctor pushed past a few of the soldiers to get a better look and was surprised by what he saw. The woman inside of the coffin, though supposedly being dead for months, still appeared fresh, with no visible signs of decay. She looked almost as if she were merely sleeping. Her stomach appeared full, and there seemed to be a small amount of blood trickling from her mouth. The doctor stood motionless in disbelief until he was startled by one of the village men thrusting a large iron stake into the woman's chest. Fresh blood poured out of the wound, and the woman briefly made what could only be described as a shrieking noise. After that moment, the doctor became a believer so much so that he would attend several more vampire hunts and soon became a knowledgeable source on the subject. He's said to be the main reason that the vampire legend swept through Germany and through the rest of Europe. He is also credited to why vampire hysteria would soon shoot across Germany and eventually, throughout all of Europe. The legend of the vampire is largely based on humanity's fear of death. Not only of death itself, but of the dead as well. It's also a testament to people's misunderstanding of the decomposition process, something which to many is a mystery today. There are several factors which would have led to the right conditions for those vampire corpses. If misunderstood, these conditions would have fooled many into believing the corpse was indeed a vampire. Many of the documented vampire stories seem to always come about during the colder winter months. And that is more than just a mere coincidence. Decomposition typically happens at temperatures of around 50 degrees Fahrenheit and will occur more rapidly in temperatures of 70 degrees Fahrenheit and above. Since the corpse is buried underground, the temperature there is always a bit lower than above. Couple that with cold winter weather, and corpses can remain relatively fresh for sometimes months. Another interesting fact is that in a majority of the reported cases of vampires. The deceased often suffered a sudden, often violent death, which resulted in significant hemorrhaging. This can also slow the decomposition process, as many of the bacteria, which assist in bringing about the decay, rely on and feed off of the protein content and blood. Less blood means a slower decomposition time. It's also interesting to note that people who die under such conditions, they would already be suspect to a wide array of supernatural traits. Many cultures viewed sudden deaths like that as being unnatural, making for a vengeful spirit who is was unable to move on. We could go into why bellies would appear full and explain the blood around the mouth, but the details of that gets a little gross. And I don't want to be held responsible for the ruination of any appetites. So let's just say that too is just a part of the natural decomposition process. Now, in a lot of the stories, you'll always hear of the vampire, the corpse, shrieking when it's being stabbed. And that really would have happened whenever they were thrusting the stake into the corpse. That would be pushing out a lot of the gases that had been building up, which would have escaped through the mouth passing through vocal cords and it would have made that weird screaming sound. Now one thing fascinating about vampire lore is how the details of what a vampire does and ways to tell it apart, how they differ from country to country. In some places, vampires are afraid of the sunlight, while in others, sunlight is not an issue at all. Some places, they do not have a reflection, while in others, they do. The things that seem to remain a constant is that they feast on the blood of the living, shapeshift, and seemed to always go hand-in-hand hand with disease. Many historians today believe that the vampire legends from the 1700s are a way of trying to explain rabies. Rabies is a disease that can come on suddenly and is contracted most often via a bite from an infected animal or person. The disease attacks the brain and will result in some extreme psychological and behavioral responses. Often, the person will go mad and become incredibly violent often attacking and biting anyone who crosses their path. If the victim survives the initial attack, they too will most likely soon meet the same fate as their attacker. Most of the attributes we associate with the vampire align with the symptoms of rabies. The chosen animals in which vampires shape shift into are also indicative to ties with rabies, as most vampire lore has them transforming into wolves or bats. Today, we most commonly associate vampires with transforming into bats, but most of the vampire stories from those times have them transforming into wolves. Back then, wolves were seen as frightening, almost evil creatures. They stalked the night hunting livestock, and sometimes even attacked people. In fact, wolves were known to go mad and would at time terrorize villages. These mad wolves, of course, were in fact rabid. Bats, of course, are another creature that is often associated with rabies. The shape-shifting element also ties in to the society's fear of what separates humans from animals, the fear of becoming too animalistic, and was often a way to kind of look down on other people. In just about every single vampire lore story, the suspected vampire is almost always a peasant. And often, they're almost always female as well. Well, I want to thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you enjoyed a little bit of history behind the vampire lore.